Show number 194 of Look at His Butt, special interview edition. The Butt Girls were extremely fortunate to have spent an hour with John Tenuto, who is well-known among Trek fandom and a Trek scholar. We were able to go to his hotel room and sit down with him and talk about many, many things during our last con experience. So we're going to present the interview to you in full. It's fascinating, and we hope to have him back on the show again pretty soon. Uh, And now I'm going to read a little bit about him because this particular article says it much better than I could have. So... John Tenuto has been a College of Lake County Sociology professor for 16 years and has been nominated nine times for Outstanding Teacher of the Year, winning the award twice, once in 2006 and again in 2013. He is the co-author of Social Movement Theory and Research, an annotated bibliographical guide, and his research on how Star Trek was made despite social and cultural limitations has been featured in the Chicago Sun-Times, Britain's SFX Magazine, BBC Radio, and WGN News. He was recently named one of Star Trek's most influential fans by New York Magazine's Vulture.com, and he and his wife Maria Jose write a monthly column for the official StarTrek.com website. And he is one of the nicest people you could ever meet, and he seems to be omnipresent at cons. He's everywhere doing everything, and rightly so. So, without further ado, here's our interview. our business. That's what the starship is all about. That's why we're aboard her. So we're here with John Tenuto, and thank you very much for making the time to talk with us. You were very busy today. We saw both of your presentations, which were great. Now, the first one you filled in for Richard Arnold, correct? Because he was sick? Yes. uh, Fortunately, he was sick this weekend. Um, They had uh, asked on Friday or Thursday night if um, I could just uh, help out a little bit, and I was I was happy to, to contribute if I could, so mm-hmm. that'd be great. I'm just going to get a little bit closer, okay? Because we talk loud. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> okay. And it'll get you, because yeah, because I talk the loudest of all. <laughs> yes, yes, I really enjoyed your um, your presentation on Star Trek history through newspaper and magazine articles. And the stories you were telling, I mean, we feel like we're pretty well-versed in Star Trek, but especially that last one about how, no, Star Wars was not the impetus for bringing Star mm-hmm. Trek back. That it had been planned and then canceled and planned and canceled. That I found very fascinating. Um, do you want to share that or, or one of your stories with uh, us? Sure. Um, you know, one of the resources I recommend for anybody is uh, there's a wonderful book by Judy and Garfield Reeve-Stevens, uh, called Phase Two, which really mm-hmm. looks at the television side of mm-hmm, that whole mm-hmm. process. Uh, I really recommend that. Uh, but what the article showed was that the return of Star Trek was something that was very had a long gestation period. They uh, the very first articles kind of hinting at Star Trek coming back in newspapers or directly dealing with it were in January 1972 that we found, Mm -hmm. which is only three years after the Mm -hmm. show's cancellation. It's doing well in syndication, though. Um, And uh, conventions are just beginning, you know. uh, uh, In fact, the first article appears the same month that the very first convention Mm -hmm. is being planned in New York. So uh, in that article, uh, we didn't get a chance to go into it too in-depth in the talk, but in that article, um, Gene Roddenberry also talks about the fact that he had just 
sort of finalized plans to do the animated series too. So that was an interesting aspect of that article that Star Trek was kind of already coming back. Mm -hmm. But in there, he talked about the fact that they felt that Paramount felt that there was about $3 million already in sales that they thought they could guarantee, almost guarantee that they felt looking at the numbers uh, that if they made a movie, they'd make at least $3 million worth of ticket sales. Um, they were talking about Robert Redford maybe getting a guest star of that caliber for, oh, the, wow. for the show. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, but they weren't sure. Would it would come back maybe as a movie of the week, a movie mm-hmm. in theaters? But there was that talk very early in January 1972. Um, what you see as you go through the timeline is that around 1975, uh, two years before Star Wars is on, is really on anybody's radar, they uh, they have already started plans for a Star Trek movie. There's a script that's written. Uh, and then Philip Kaufman, who was also scheduled to direct, who went on to direct amazing films like Right Stuff, The Right Stuff, um, he wrote a version of the script too. And the, the, the this movie was called, depending on what version you look at, Planet of the Titans or Planet of Titans. And the basic storyline was that there were three races, the Federation, the Klingons, and a new alien creation that, for the movie called the Signans, that went to this planet where these very advanced people called the Titans lived. Uh, and these people had just disappeared, and no one knew or ever knew what happened to these people. But they were very technologically advanced, and um, it turns out in the story that those Titans were actually the Enterprise crew who are thrown back in time, they become the Titans and they disappear because they return to their own time. Mm-hmm. And so it's a very Star Trek story, very mm-hmm, interesting mm-hmm. kind of story, you know, development of a new planet and that, you know, or a planet anyway, that sort of thing. Um, but that about a month before Star Wars comes out in theaters is April 1977. Um, those plans for that $5 million film are abruptly stopped because Paramount uh, really wants to get a fourth network off the ground. Mm-hmm. And the idea is to have Star Trek be that that uh, sh- show, that uh, their sort of anchor show. What what eventually happened with Voyager, right? Uh, where UPN is launched with with Star Trek, they couldn't get enough investors, and unfortunately, that falls apart by the end of that year. Basically, that idea, uh, and then in March 1978, they would they would. Uh, have this big press conference and announce the, the Star Trek motion mm-hmm. picture. But it, it isn't uh, the very sort of simplistic version that I think most mm-hmm. people believe, which yes. is Star Wars comes out, is this enormous hit, and then Paramount decides to launch a movie. In fact, the Star Trek movie was planned long in advance of Star Wars, was canceled right when Star Wars was going to hit. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the influence of Star Wars probably was to get a, a really well-known, amazing director up the budget, you mm-hmm. know, up the stakes because of Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Right. But it wasn't that the film was or was or not. If, my, my feeling would be if, the, if all this history happened and there was no Star Wars at all, they still would have done a Star Trek movie. They, mm-hmm. they would have tried the movie, mm-hmm. canceled it to do the TV show, then, then gone back to the plans for that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it would maybe not have had the budget, uh, you know, that sort of thing. But that might not have necessarily have been a bad thing, you know. Right, right. Uh, so uh, it's a really interesting, that's one of the, I think, the really interesting aspects of this is the newspapers are wonderful because they really date things. That, you mm-hmm. know, this, this interview happened, uh, had to happen on this day or near that date. Uh, this information exists at this time, and it really presents a wonderful timeline for researchers. Yeah. So I, I'm now I'm just curious. Sorry, I just no, want to okay. ask. So how did the Phase 2 TV series fit in with all the plans for the movie that were going along and going along and then got canceled and then came back again? Was that just in between? Well, the Phase 2, the whole Phase 2 film, and then eventually what morphed into 
the script yeah. you know, in thy image morphs into yeah, yeah. The, the motion picture all occurs in that period when the when this Planet of Titans film is kind of being canceled and they're looking at what they're going to do. I mean, it, not kind of again, it was canceled. Uh, and then they were going to bring it back as a TV show. So the TV show is going to start off with this in thy image mm-hmm. uh, storyline. And then, of course, that gets converted into the motion picture mm-hmm. screenplay. But, you know, they, they had already sort of geared up for production a little bit on the film. That rolls over into in thy image. And then in thy image rolls over wow. into the, the motion picture. So um, when did you first become aware of... Star Trek. Well, you know, I uh, f- since I was a child, I mean, I, uh, my mother bought me from the Montgomery Ward's bargain basement uh, in Chicago um, a uh, an Enterprise playset from Mego, mm-hmm. and that was my introduction to it. Was actually through the toys. Uh, it was about 1974, 1975. Uh, I was about seven years old or so when she bought these toys. And then from there, I well, so while I'm playing with these toys, I want to know what this is about. Mm-hmm. I started watching the show. But so, I, I, you know, through the 70s, I was interested in it. But it really was Wrath of Khan. My, my dad, uh, I was going to California for the summer. Uh, my dad said, pick, a, pick something to do. Um, and uh, I said, well, why don't we, let's go see the Star Trek film. And it just happened to be on opening day. <laughs> I didn't know it was opening day. Out, yes. I had never been to a movie on opening day. I had loved Star Wars, and so you know, as a kid, and, and loved films. But I never went on opening day. I didn't have that mentality. I think I don't think a lot of people had that mentality back mm-hmm. then. And uh, but we went to opening day at the Esquire Theater in Chicago, mm-hmm. and of course. To see it on opening day was an introduction into the world of mm-hmm. Star Trek fandom and the enthusiasm. I, remember, I clearly remember being in the bathroom before the show started and everybody in the bathroom talking about either what they were going to see or what they had seen. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, just the community feeling and the energy and everything. And then, of course, the film was remarkable. Uh, so it, it, that moment made me a, a Star Trek fan. Is Wrath of Khan your favorite Star Trek movie? Without a doubt. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I spend, I, my wife and I spend a, a huge amount of time studying that film, studying the making of it. I've been very fortunate uh, to be able to access archives on the making of it, um, to be able to ask Mr. Nicholas Meyer questions when we have them, and he's always very generous and supplies those answers when we email him. Um and, you know, Ricardo Montalban is just a remarkable human being. Uh, uh, an extension of that has been a really deep research we've done on his life. Mm-hmm. Um, and his life was, a, if you could remove Star Trek from that equation, his life was an amazing life of compassion and concern for other people and just talent and dignity and just... You know, to hear his story every single year, I read his biography once a year. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a 1980 biography he wrote with Bob Thomas, who was a newspaper reporter. Um, and there's not a single mention of Star Trek in there. But it is just this, because Khan, Khan had not come back yet, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but it is an amazing biography to, to learn about his life and what it was like growing up in Mexico and just uh, what he faced as a child and then coming to the United States. And just so... You know, everyone in the film, I love the actors, I love the costumes, the music. I mean, there's, and the, that film deserves, uh, it's got so much to offer, so much to say. It was so important to the franchise. Mm-hmm. 
if that film had failed, we none of we wouldn't mm-hmm. be here talking with each mm-hmm. other today. There would be Star Trek. There would be nothing. I don't. I don't believe so. I and then at that it was not only successful but hugely successful. Uh, you know, biggest box office mm-hmm. opening of all time was Star Trek: The Wrath of Khan at that time. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, you know, it was it was it's an amazing film. Um, historically, I think it's it's probably Ricardo Montalban's finest performance. Well, I've always you know. thought you could, I mean, he did a remarkable job, but you could also see inside how much fun as an actor he was having, just, you know, chewing the scenery and, you know, the quoting Melville and the whole thing. I mean, it's just, it's such a wonderful movie. It was King Lear. I mean, it was his chance mm-hmm. to play that that great big giant role that he yes. deserved so much and got didn't you know you know of course everybody loves Mr. Rourke but Mr. Rourke was exposition yeah. that mm-hmm. was his purpose you mm-hmm. know to be mysterious mm-hmm. and but you know became a master at exposition you yeah. know because of that uh there was seven years of that so it was you know it's an amazing uh journey he had as an actor being in some wonderful films um and then uh, but never really getting too many roles that 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 I think Gave him a chance, uh, but there were there were roles in his career certainly, mm-hmm. but the the one great role, you know, that the chance mm-hmm. to really show everything that he had, and I think that Khan gave him a little bit of that chance, mm-hmm. you know, and it moved him away from what we had seen, which is a lot of romantic roles mm-hmm. and things like that. And but there was a romance in the film, you know, the yes. romance being, you know, him and his wife, but she, she's not there, and just so brilliant, you know. Any any film, I mean, you know, sixty five percent of that film is mm-hmm. is the same set, yeah, and you don't care. No, that's great writing. That's yeah, great directing. That's, that's great that's acting. Everything. Story. Yeah. Well, he's so brilliant in the original episode too. Oh, I mean, yeah. for, that role for him then I think was pivotal in a lot of ways because it it showed him so much depth to that character in his acting of it. I mean, in the writing of it too. There's a lot, but just the way he played it brought so much more to it. So one of the things we were talking about was we loved your breakdown of the history of Space Seed. And all the drafts that it went through and all the history and where it finally ended up. And, you know, you can see how the character morphed along the way and what happened to it. But if they hadn't gotten him to play that role, it wouldn't have been Khan in, in any way, shape, or form. It would have been interesting, but it wouldn't have been Khan. And I don't think they could have brought him back as a character for the movie. No, I think a lot of that, I mean, part of it was when you have an actor like Ricardo Montalban, you see you see him... He's popular at that time that they're doing Star, they're planning to do Star Trek Two. Harv Bennett is, has all these choices among episodes to do a sequel to. He can't do a sequel to Star Trek: The Motion Picture, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to do a sequel to an episode, which was a brilliant, uh, was idea. Brilliant, yeah, a great mm-hmm. idea, right? And 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 you know, okay, here's this great guest star who's on an exceptionally popular television show at this time. I mean who Ricardo Montalban was as a person and the track of his, even just the, the mundane mm-hmm. track of his career in the meaning that he was in a, from a practical point of view, he was in a popular television show is something that had to have been part of that equation. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, he brought to that role, you know, a Joe D'Augusto when he cast that role, I think is one of the most brilliant examples of casting in television history mm-hmm. because he, and it really showed the creativity that casting directors have to have too, mm-hmm. because he, he imagined out of the box, you know, he, the, the, anybody else would have put a, a you know, a Nordic looking, uh, you know, mm-hmm. blonde haired, blue eyed Aryan, you know, figure in there. But this and gave he, him even more contrast with Kirk. I mean, yeah. just the physical 
physical contrast. Every, yes, very. They're fit, small and big, and yeah. mm-hmm. and uh, the the accent versus no, you know, mm-hmm. Midwestern accent, mm-hmm. you know, that uh, Kirk's supposed to have. Um, yeah, it was wonderful. Wonderful. And they're so good together. Oh man, they're so good. I mean, it, it's funny that in the movie, everybody talks about the fact that they are never together. But yet they are because everybody remembers what it was like when they were in the room together in the episode. Mm-hmm. And that just carries over so well into the yes. movie, even though they're not ever in a room together. It's there, that, that spark that flies mm-hmm. whenever they're talking to each other. It's a great, you know, the, one of the things about uh, Wrath of Khan, I, I, uh, Nicholas Meyer has always said that art thrives on limitations. And I think Star Trek is really the case study mm-hmm. of that, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the television show, the movies, everything. And so, you know, in one of the original drafts of uh, Wrath of Khan, they were to meet, and they were to have this sword fight, um, and, you know, we've been, we've been able to read that draft, you know, and it, it actually reads a little bit like what was eventually in Star Trek Three, mm. where Khan kind of comes down unexpectedly, uh, he, but he brings swords, so he's, you know, let's... let's do this fight, you know, you and I are going to mm-hmm. fight now. and then, But it ultimately all winds up in the same place. Khan does defeat Kirk in the mm-hmm. fight. Uh, and But strands him there. He doesn't kill him, he strands him. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you wind up in the same place, right? Yeah. And I think in some ways there probably was, besides the cost factor, which I'm sure was part of it, that would have been a big action sequence. Um, you know, you're fighting with swords in a science fiction adventure. I it can't, you can't help but then think, well, these are lightsabers, right? <laughs> they're, even though they're old swords, you're thinking, was that why Star Trek can't animate the beam? Mm-hmm. You know, what's wrong with them? Yeah. Um, so I think that that might have played in. You know, maybe that played mm-hmm. into it, that sort of thing. But because of whatever limitations there were, time, money, energy, that scene was dropped. And I think it's brilliant, a brilliant example of the, how a limitation like time or budget or, or whatever mm-hmm. it was can it improve. you to fall back on your creativity. Yeah, and produces and a great scene. Because they still fight, but they fight with words. Yes. You know, over and the they're comments. in starships, which is what we want in Star Trek. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, yes. yeah. Which is, you know, that is the one of the differences with the new films is that Kirk is, and maybe that's something he'll mature into. We could but, hope. <laughs> but, but, you know, he, he's, he doesn't really resolve things very much on the bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, he's more of an action hero. He's kind of out and doing things. And I think for Star Trek fans, we're very used to the captain of on really almost all the shows in some ways, uh, certainly when Deep Space Nine gets the Defiant and so mm-hmm. on. We're so used to the, the bridge is the, is, the, is, the, is the home, is the center of the, the crew's life. And that's where a lot of the dilemmas get solved. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, Kirk is almost never in the chair in the new films, mm-hmm. and we're so used to Kirk being in the chair, and that's where he belongs, is in, in a way in the chair. And you know, yeah, if you have a young, handsome actor who can run around and do these amazing things, well, you want to do that and tap mm-hmm. into that. Um, and certainly, Star Trek does. I mean, Star Trek Three, he's down on the planet f- fighting with his fists and so on. Mm-hmm. I mean, it isn't that he was only always in the ship. But I think that the the Khan is a wonderful example of how you can have two actors. In combat with each other on an intellectual level, that's then represented visually by the ships and the space, and make it really dynamic. Mm-hmm. Now, Lena and I have been friends for what fifteen years or so, oh, um, at like least. Yeah. yeah. And we first got to know each other through our involvement with Star Trek fan fiction. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had any involvement in that area of the fandom? Well, I've studied that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, Henry Jenkins has an idea mm-hmm. called textual yes. poaching, yep. right? Yes, yes. that's yes. a great book. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly I think you, you can't study the history of Star Trek 
without studying fanzines, whether they were uh, fanzines that were more the making of the show or that sort of thing, or more creative fanzines in terms of original stories. Uh, but, you know, fanzines and fan writing have been there from the beginning. You had Spock and Alia, which was really the first, and in fact was not only the first uh, Star Trek one, um, was very important to the show. They they kept Spock and Alia in the offices. Uh, the, the Almost every actor, uh, certainly DeForest Kelly, uh, uh, Leonard Nimoy, um, Walter Koenig, wrote uh, to Spock and Alia, and often wrote in character. Really? So if you get those, early, you get those early Spock, and there were, there were I think there were only five or six issues mm-hmm. of that. But um, you, there is actually a thing back and forth between Leonard Nimoy and DeForest Kelly as their characters. Uh-huh. Where, so Leonard Nimoy is saying, you know, well, you can imagine what it's like to be treated by some mm-hmm. primitive, you know, mm-hmm. bone rattling, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> and, and then uh, writing as McCoy, DeForest Kelly writes back and, you know, it's just like Vulcans, mm-hmm. how can you deal with them, you know, how do yes. you take... And so, um, and Gene Roddenberry wrote letters to them and mm-hmm. Dorothy Fontana. In one of those issues, Dorothy Fontana reveals what her version of Spock's first name is. And it's printed out. I mean, it is unpronounceable because mm-hmm. it is just this string of yeah. number and letters and, and, and so no, not numbers, but, <laughs> but numbers, seven of nine. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, so th- that was very, very important to that. And that included um, a lot of fan fiction, a lot of fan writings. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, women, especially women, were the pioneers of Star Trek fandom um, and uh, and whether that was the convention world or the world of the well committee, you mm-hmm. know that was done uh, was initially Jacqueline Lichtenberg's idea, but would mm-hmm. uh, Shirley Majewski, Grandma Trek, they used to mm-hmm. call her. Uh, she ran that. I mean, that was very very important. And they had a fanzine, and then, and, and Shirley Majewski wrote fan fiction. So it's a very big part of Star Trek's history and an important mm-hmm. part. And that's part of that fanership that we call. Fanership, where fans own Star Trek, and um, I like that. Yeah, I think it's great. And thank you very much for mentioning that when you were showing those pictures today, and you showed the photos of Joan Winston. Mm-hmm. The fact that, that you actually called attention to the fact that women were so crucial and were running the first conventions, because I just don't think people say that enough. And it, it's it it's very annoying to us and to all of the women that we're friends with who are such big fans of Star Trek. When people think of your typical Star Trek fans. They're always like, oh, all those fanboys. It's like, well, no, actually, it was the women who <laughs> yeah. got it back on the air, and the yeah. women who ran the cons, and the women who did the fan fiction. Like, you have to give some credit to all the women who were there at the beginning. Yeah, one of the first studies that uh, my wife and I did in, in, in the world studying Star Trek was taking a look at modern fandom. Now, this was, I want to say, fifteen years ago. So that you know, it's not data you would want to go by today. You know. But uh, we, what we did see, we compared Superman fans with uh, Star Trek fans and with Star Wars fans. And a lot of surprising data, just sort of demographic studies. Uh, it was um, uh, 8,000 fans from 54 countries we looked at. And uh, while there were more men numerically, women were much more active in mm. almost every category. So we asked them questions like, you know, age and things like that, sort of demographic. We also asked, what do you do? Mm-hmm. So, you know, in the last 12 months, have you costumed? Have you... We didn't use cosplay because that, that, that word really mm-hmm. didn't exist mm-hmm. back then. 
Um, you know, but do you costume at least once a year? Do you write fan fiction? Do you, and just overwhelmingly in almost every category, except the sort of passive ones. So things like watching the shows, men tended to do that more things like that, where it was a little more like, you know, reading the books, you know, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. But things where there was a certain amount of, I don't want to say energy, but, uh, effort effort or yeah, (laughs) you know, or yeah, yeah. Um, were overwhelming in all. So that was true for Superman fans. That was true for Star Wars fans. But that was very true for Star Trek fans. So, um, you know, it would be interesting to kind of do that study today because I think things like costuming has become much bigger, you know, much oh, more, yeah. much yeah. more popular. I, I just watched a really interesting documentary about um, Doctor Who fandom um, by a guy in England, and it's called Who's Changing, and mm. it was very good. And it was specifically about the demographics of fans and how it, you know it went from being tiny, tiny little cons when Doctor Who was on, and the actors would just turn up, like Tom Baker would just walk down the street mm. and go into this room, and people mm-hmm. would go, "Oh my God, Tom Baker." here to now and they were saying that the demographics have changed dramatically where it was literally all men and no women would show up and now it's becoming overwhelmingly female especially where it's the more active kind of fandom where women are writing the fan fiction and dressing up and doing things Mm -hmm. and really putting a lot of effort into being creative with it doing things with the fandom that's what we've been talking about especially with the people down in the dealer's room today we met the people who do um star trek improv star trek Mm -hmm. improv Mm -hmm. and then the folks who do the klingon christmas carol and we are just in love with people who do creative things with star trek and that are not just passive consumers but take that as a starting point and do stuff it's amazing yeah it is you know that's that really is what the heart of fanership is all about Mm -hmm. is to is to you know, it's never, or, or I shouldn't say never, it's, it's, it isn't about profit for most people. Because once it becomes about profit, then you need to go get a license and, and it's mm-hmm. become something else. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting that Paramount has been very, you know, was in a way, one of the, I mean, it, partially because no one else was doing anything like that anyway. But I think Paramount was very smart uh, very early on realizing that you can, let a certain amount of this go, you know, you can, you can, if you're, if you're not making profit and you're not churning the, you know, t-shirts out and things like that, that you're doing that to, to aggrandize your wallet, but you're doing it out of a sense of love for the show, mm-hmm. whether it's doing a, a, um, a fanzine or putting on a convention and, and that sort of thing. Um, they've been pretty supportive of that. And certainly Gene Roddenberry was very supportive of that. Um, and I think that that is very unique amongst uh, Star Trek. And then when it isn't unique, it's because Star Trek showed that that can work and still the parent company, the, license, the, the holder of the, of the copyrights, can still make the money that they need to make and that that actually enhances and continues the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the fan experience that's, that, that is done in that realm winds up coming back where you're getting new people being mm-hmm. brought in. And then, of course, then they want to buy the DVDs yeah, mm-hmm. and all that. So it's all, you know, it's all, a, 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 I think, a wonderful marriage of that. But fans have been so incredibly creative throughout all of Star Trek's history. Um, and I think it's very important to acknowledge the early fans mm-hmm. who really, you know, a lot of what we do today, what we did today, I think, at the convention. You know, Adam, what Adam is doing is what he did in 1971 on a smaller scale back then mm-hmm. um, in New York when he was a teenager. He's doing it now on a larger scale and, you know, an official scale and all of that. But what we do as fans is, is, is also what they did. 
mm-hmm. but we're doing it on, you know, we're sharing, uh, you know, that one of the favorite fanzines out there, um, was, uh, Interstat, which was a, a fanzine that was very unusual. You would write a letter, I'd write a letter, we'd all write letters, and then they would publish the letters. And then you were the next issue. You had responses to those letters. Yes. Oh, yes. And okay. it was it was a computer bulletin board. Mm-hmm. It was Facebook before those things existed. And so I think what we do now is we just sort of we've moved all this into the digital world or mm-hmm. whatever. But we, if we want to understand who we are as fans, we need to understand those early days of fandom in the 1960s and 70s when this was all sort of being created. Now, I know you are a college professor, yes? Yes. And does Star Trek come into your teaching? Do you tell, tell us something about, you know, your curriculum? Or... <laughs> sure. Um, well, I do. I, I occasionally do uh, Star Trek-specific classes. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, do all kinds of different pop culture classes. I have a sociology through Star Wars, a sociology through Superman, a sociology through Star Trek. Uh, I have a 1970s popular culture class, which takes a look at a lot of 70s sitcoms, music, mm-hmm. things like that. Because the 70s are really the last great era of popular culture. I don't know that we even have popular we culture anymore. Yeah, yeah it's mm-hmm. niche culture um, now. But the the uh, in my regular classes, uh, the Star Trek is a is a part of those classes. In my regular sociology classes, I will use that along with many other. Um, popular culture references. I think, you know, you have to stick with class in today's world. Um, you know, I, I could say to somebody, and if I taught in the 1970s, I could say, how many of you have seen this episodes of Welcome Back, Cotter? And, you know, it's a 50%, a 70% of the hands would go up. Because uh, they only had three stations to yes. choose from. I mean, it wasn't like, you know. But now if you say, you know, how many of you watched The Big Bang Theory this week? Two people will raise their hands. Mm-hmm. And, and there may be eight people that watch the show in the class, but they watch it once a year on DVD. Mm-hmm. Another person, you know, they binge watch it or whatever people call it. And, uh, you know, one person watches it every single week. One person catches up with it whenever they get it, you know. And so I like to stick with very um, classic and and uh, iconic things mm-hmm. like Superman, like Star Wars, because chances are even if a student is from another culture and different age backgrounds, um, they, they they look, you got to know who Darth Vader is. I mean, you know, if you're alive, you know who Darth <laughs> Vader is. You, you, they know who Mr. Spock is, even if they've never seen the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, they know, they've seen it, they've kind of gotten it. And, you know, and, that, and, and the new films have generated an awareness of Star Trek, and especially the old version, because I do have a lot of, especially female students, but who've seen the new films, and now they go back and watch the originals. Good. And they want to know who is, who is, who, where did this start? Mm-hmm. And then they become hooked on that. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, so, but the new films, at least I can say Spock, and they know, they know the mm-hmm. character and things like that. So, um, but, and I do do, there's a, there's, I don't want to call it a shtick, but I do a thing throughout the whole semester that I know you guys would appreciate. I do, I do have my William Shatner fascination uh, is a big theme. A part of it, but that, that actually serves a purpose. I think a teacher has to humble themselves in front of their students. You, 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 you're, you're in service to your students. That doesn't mean I don't believe you're a guide on the side. I don't buy into any of that. Mm-hmm. I am a sage on the stage. Because mm-hmm. why else are their parents paying the tuition if I'm not smart enough to stand up there and deliver something? That doesn't mean I'm smart. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it just means I'm smart enough in that one little area to be able to say something to them. Um, at the same time, I'm in service to them. 
So it is important that I am lower than them because I am in service to them. But I need to be lower than them at the same time I am the teacher. So I am here. And, you know, so it's, and I, so I think it's very important to humanize yourself and to humble yourself. So by having this sort of obsession with William Shatner, I become a flawed person, not because of William Shatner, but because I've got this thing, right? I got a thing, right? And so I do a whole, you know, just a whole bunch of little shticks that I do throughout the semester. One of them is uh, the first day, in fact, I... Um, to, at the end of the class, I say, we're going to watch a little video or whatever. And then I say, well, it's narrated by William Shatner. And I, you know, I taped it a long time ago because his, you know, voice is like butter and, you know, it's great. He's great. And all, you know, they're all wondering what's going on. And what it is, the video is just a picture of William Shatner and I'm doing this voice. So. <laughs> and then, and it's supposed to be him. And then I, then I stop the video and I start talking to myself on the screen. Like, you're not William Shatner. And they're like, yes, I am. And then I, and I, like, I go behind the screen and I rip the paper. So it looks like I'm taking the paper off the screen, but I have uh-huh. the same picture behind the screen. And then I'm there. <laughs> and I have this conversation with myself about how, you know, what's wrong with you. But it also serves the purpose of them learning about expectations and how society has these expectations. And is that really the way that things go? And it's kind of strange to explain it without seeing it. But it, so that right away sort of sets off this thing of like, well, this guy's like obsessed. So if you go, you know, if you read my rate, my professor things, there's a lot of like, you know, William Shatner, Star Trek, you know, or whatever, but a lot, but it's never alienating to the students. It's not, it's not there because it's about me. What it does is it, 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 first of all, sociology and Star Trek go together Mm -hmm. brilliantly. Um, so it gives them handy examples, you know, as the, as does, you know, Seinfeld and all the other examples that I use big bang theory and all that. Um, because it, you know, it's gotta be fun. We've lost that idea that, you know, look, school is practice. I mean, we've, we've sort of forgotten that idea. Um, you're, you're, it's okay to make a mistake in school. You don't want to make the mistake when you're doing a pitch and you have a million dollar mm-hmm. account on the line, mm-hmm. but you can make the mistake in school. It's a place to learn. Yeah. We're so focused on assessments and outcomes and measuring and we've sort of forgotten what it means to teach and that part of the teaching experience and learning experience is making mistakes and then picking yourself up and figuring out how do you go around that. And so, and I also think we've taken a lot of the fun out of education. So I really believe in, um, in that. And so, uh, you know, I've been, I was, this year I was very fortunate to win the teacher of the year award. And so oh, at graduation, oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, so at graduation, I had William Shatner's, I, I had Captain Kirk, I should say, not William Shatner, but I had Captain Kirk standy with me on the stage as I gave my speech. Cardboard Kirk. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, and that, you know, that, you know, and I had parents who had not, don't know anything about me came up and said that they love that and that, that, you know, that was very warm and thing. So, you know, it, it humanizes you to have something, whether it's a love of stamp collecting or baseball or whatever. So, um, and I also think teachers need to be authentic people in front of their students. Mm-hmm. Students know when you're lying to them or trying to be somebody you're not. And uh, so I want to be who I am, and I love Star Trek, and that's a big part of my life. It's been an important part of my life. It was a connection I had with my dad who loves science fiction. Um, and so, uh, uh, you know, I, it's how my family and I spend our time together in terms of vacation sometimes. And uh, it's not my whole life, but it's an important part of my yeah. life. So um, you have a fascination with Bill, as do we. Mm-hmm. 
And um, so do you have any sort of relationship with him? Has he participated in your researches or have you been able to ask him questions as you're working? You know, I spend mo most of the time I, I work with uh, and I've been fortunate enough to be get help from behind the scenes people. Mm -hmm. um, I have on occasion had tangential relations with uh, with him in terms of uh, charity events, things like that, where he has donated items. Uh, then that, again, I don't deal with him. I would deal with Paul, mm -hmm. you know, who works with him. Um, but, you know, in terms of the research that I do, uh, you know, people like D.C. Fontana and um, Joe D'Augusta and, and Nicholas Meyer especially – um, have been very, very helpful in that research in terms of the behind the scenes thing. But I, you know, I, you know, I've always been able to, um, to know that, uh, the behind the scenes people can help me understand that. But I would love one day, you know, there's very few people that were there mm -hmm. that are still around, you mm -hmm. know, I, there's so many questions that I have. One of the things, you know, as we were trying to figure out was, when, when we were looking at all the drafts and the memos, when we were uh, uh, very kindly uh, allowed to look at the archives of, mm -hmm. of Gene Roddenberry's at UCLA um, and to copy it, which was very important to the Paramount gave us permission to copy those because by copying it, I w we were able to put the things out and live with them for a little bit and move things around mm -hmm. on pay, you know, mm -hmm. that, that we couldn't have done if we had to just be in the archives there and writing down stuff. And that's where we sort of figured out this timeline of, no, oh, no, wait a second. When they cast Ricardo Montalban in Space Seed, that alters that character. He goes from being Ragnar Thorwald mm -hmm. to Khan and what happened. And and that's when we, that led us to discover Gene Roddenberry's involvement in the script directly, improving it at the very, very end and adding the Khan element to, you know, some of the Khan elements to it. And... Um, so it was, it, it, you know, it was very, very helpful to be able to, 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 to look at that paperwork. But we had questions and, you know, gosh, who do you ask? Uh, D.C. Fontana was, was helpful. Uh, Joe D'Augusta was helpful. But you can't talk to Ricardo Montalban. Mm -hmm. You can't, you know. Yeah. And, and in many ways, the actors were, were not involved in the pre-production side mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. So the, the most helpful people are always the creative people. But there's not a lot of, you know, of, of original behind the scenes mm -hmm. people left anymore. It's a sad that it never got the Star Star Wars gets all this amazing making of attention and mm -hmm. it, and it should, it deserves it for sure. Um, but they come out with new books, uh, enormous volumes on mm -hmm. the making of mm -hmm. these films as if they're just coming out right now. Um, and I think Star Trek deserves that. And, and there's never really been an official, telling of this and this yes. is another you know to me what i do is fanership it's mm -hmm. just academically mm -hmm. oriented but um it's it's that same desire to be creative and to and to, to to look at that so you know i would love to sit down and sort of look at what especially the period of time i think that mr with with william shatner what i think is important is that 1965 july 1965 june 1965 to to when Star Trek's on the air, period, because his involvement there appears to have been significant, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, not just shaping the character, his own character, but in essence sort of shaping some of the heart and spirit of the show. Certainly, and the tone of it. He brought the, the humor initially, the, the, the energy, lighter touch the and energy. the energy. Oh, my God, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, one of the things we've talked about a lot is, first of all, the documentary 
that he did, The Captains, mm -hmm. which I think should get much more attention than mm -hmm. it does. And as you're saying, a lot of these original people are not around anymore or may not be around for much longer. And to me, the most moving moment was when he was talking to Patrick Stewart. And Patrick Stewart said, I'm perfectly okay being remembered as Jean-Luc Picard. And you see Bill suddenly go, yeah. Why did I push this away for so long? And I, I feel he's much more open now in his dealings with with the fans, with the press, and much more comfortable being himself in those things. I mean, over the years, you see him on the earlier talk shows, it's a little more formal, and now he's like, I'm 84, I don't care, I'll say what I want. And it's amazing, I feel like you get a little bit more of the real Bill there. But it's yeah. nice for him to, to really, truly, at that moment, understand and even embrace what he has meant to people. Because I don't think he got that for a very long time. You know, it's it is you know it's a you know as a teacher one of the things is you never really get you you don't see you know I don't make anything for a living in terms of an item you know mm -hmm. I, I there's, no, there's no I can't look at the end of the day and say I made that thing you know I made that chair I made that table and it's a weird job because you you don't even know the effect that you have most of the time because you you the student may never come back and tell you and if you do get told it's usually um, you know, five years down the road, uh, 10 years down the road. And you're like, wow, you know, but in those moments that you're told that, you know, you want to say, well, okay, well, you know, you did it though. You know, like, what did I do? I just stood up in a class and I sort of did that. But you know, it is important for us to realize what effect we have on every other mm -hmm. person. And in fact, in part, one of the most important ideas in sociology I want my students to learn is something called the sociological imagination, which is an idea by a famous sociologist named C. Wright Mills. Um, and who I joke with my students was in the military, so his name real his name in the military was General Mills. Um, <laughs> and, but uh, C. Wright Mills, this idea of the intersection between biography and history, so that you know t today, if you hold the door open for somebody, you're making them thirty seconds earlier or later than they would have been if you hadn't done that, mm -hmm. and that can sometimes be the difference between them getting hit by a car or that car passing by and them safely crossing the road. By, by standing in line at the grocery store, you are changing the futures of the people behind us. I mean, uh, you know, if you think about how you met your spouse or how you met your boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever something happens to be, a lot of times it might be like, well, we happen to be at that same place at that same moment. Well, what if you weren't? What if, what if, what if on the airplane someone coughed left instead of right, you got sick and didn't go to that party? Mm -hmm. And so we, just in our everyday small living, have a tremendous influence on all of history. Uh, I use the example with my students that when you take this class, you're registered for it, you filled the seat. Somebody else wants to take this class, can't because you took this class. You beat them to it. And now they go to another class, they meet their wife or their husband, you know, future wife or husband. They're not going to come back and invite you to the wedding, but you're part of that chain of events that mm -hmm. brought them together. And I think that that's, you know... I hope that people like William Shatner realize that, 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 you know, you can play a character on a show. And I think, you know, he, there's two levels with William Shatner. One is the characters that he plays mm -hmm. and that you have these role models that you can have that through in the world of fiction, which is an important, I think, important to have fictional role models because fictional role models can always act in the right way. Uh, and can be really great role models. But I also think he's a role model as a person, especially in how to age. I mean, when you see him on the stage, it, you know, and I would have no doubt if for some reason he couldn't 
walk or or do he'd still have that same energy ricardo montalban was that same way he was in a wheelchair ricardo montalban but his upper body still you know that's why in the spy kids films they had the idea of giving him legs and having walk Mm -hmm. because his upper body was just because he still had a thrill of life and a Mm -hmm. love of life and an enjoyment of life and i think that william shatner as a person is a wonderful role model of how to age um, I think this idea that he's been talking about the last couple of years about saying yes. <laughs> we talk about that all the time. Yeah, yes. is, is an important idea. You know, it is so true. And I think, you know, so if we can have an effect opening a door for somebody, we, we can we can all have that kind of effect on people. It doesn't make a person lesser or more different uh, or special. I think everyone does that to everyone else. Mm-hmm. And uh, I we, we should... Uh, be thrilled with that and that if you can have a larger platform to do that yes um is a is a great opportunity and i hope he appreciates the fact that he has had that opportunity and has affected so many people's lives in really positive ways just by the character that he played and and but as equally important who he is as a person outside of that Mm-hmm. And one of the things I admire so much about him that you hear from other people, like Leonard Nimoy especially, has said, um, you know, Billy, Billy, Bill just fully commits to things. And they'd get in to do the read-through, and sometimes it'd be a terrible, terrible script, and they're all like, oh, my God, this is what we're going to do. And Bill's like, this is our script. Yeah. Let's go. He just fully commits. He gives 110% because that's his job, and he's very serious about his job. And I love when he talks about the craft of acting. Yeah, we have watched uh, through the show. I mean, we've been do- we were talking about it today. We've been doing this for nine years. This podcast, and we have tried to watch as much stuff as Bill has done. I think we'll never get through it because Bill's done so much stuff. And we've watched good things, and we've watched terrible things, and even the worst of the things that Bill has done, he is committed. He never phones it in, even when it's the crappiest TV shows, the worst low budget movies. He's there. He's playing that character. He's giving his all. He's doing it because that's who he is, and that's what he needs to do. He he can never be accused of not giving it Slacking. everything he's got. And it's like, that's Bill. That's what he does all the time. You have to admire him for that. That's what he's all about. Yeah, yeah, that's really true. I, You know, the, the Italian, I'm Italian, and one of the words, the, one of the few words in Italian I know other than ravioli, spaghetti, <laughs> the important words, um, is uh, sprezutero, which is this idea of... Uh, if you're a master at something, whatever it is, when other people see you do it, it seems effortless. Mm-hmm. And so that's a true master. They make the, the, the art of making the difficult look easy, whether they're a dancer or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think Bill Shatner does that, I, I, you know, in terms of how he is as an actor. Um, and and that, that, that commitment and, the, you know, every – I have never heard – an interview, other uh, you know, whether it was the cast of Boston Legal or Star Trek, he's on time, he's prepared, his script, mm-hmm. you know, hits the mark every time. Yeah. And you can even tell, you know, when even when he does those like little skits on things like a Jimmy Kimmel or something mm-hmm. like that, he's not reading. If if he's reading off of a cue card, I can't tell. Yeah. And, you know, because you see, I always love, like, see, seeing, you know, professional athletes or whatever. And they're, and they're doing something really nice. Like, they're doing a commercial mm-hmm. for a charity or something. But they are reading, <laughs> a, you know. <laughs> and it's just like, you couldn't memorize, like, the 10-second line, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And maybe they're nervous in camera. You know, who knows, you know. And they're not, that's not what they do for a living or anything. But 
Um, I've never seen, even in those little things, you know, anything but, yeah. you know, it's, it's great. enjoyment of what he's doing. Bill's a professional. And, I mean, we even get a laugh out of the, the, the terrible tape where he's berating that poor voiceover producer for yes. giving him direction. <laughs> but it's true, you know. I mean, you don't. Don't tell Bill what to do. He knows what he's doing. Yeah. Like, yeah. Let that's him, why you hired him. That's why you hired him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's he's the pro here. Yeah. So just <laughs> is that the sabotage? Sabotage? Yeah, that, sabotage? Um, no, it's a different one. It's, it's not different. the sabotage one. It, no, it's, it's one where this director is saying to him, "Okay, could you do it like this?" And Bill starts getting annoyed, and he goes, "No, now I want you to do it." And the guy goes, "No, you do it. No, you do it, <laughs> and I will do it exactly like you." And he does. It's just. I mean, you feel so sorry for the guy. He's completely humiliated, but... You can hear everybody in the booth is laughing at this poor yeah, guy. Um, and then finally... He used to play it a lot. And then finally he's like, okay, 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 just do it. Do oh, it. Great. Yes. Mr. Shatner, I'm sorry, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, but the sabotage one is, is great, too. <sighs> sabotage. So, listen, it's coming up to the hour, so yes, we should wrap we things wrap up. So, I've got a couple more questions to ask you. Um, this is something we ask about the movies. Do you subscribe to the theory that the even-numbered movies are the good ones and the odd-numbered ones are the, the lesser good ones? <laughs> I won't say bad ones. <laughs> I'll say less good. Yeah, Star Trek is like pizza. There's no bad Star Trek. <laughs> no bad pizza. Um, I, I would say uh, no. Okay. I do not. I think uh, Star Trek Three uh, is a very, very good film. It's operatic. It's it's different uh, than mm-hmm. Star Trek Two, but it should be because I saw Star Trek Two. I want right. something mm-hmm. different. Uh, Star Trek Five is uh, is has a, a has I think the the best interplay between the three main characters. Mm-hmm. That is a movie about brotherhood and and you know. Um, so no, I mean even if you get into the next gen films, mm-hmm. I I don't think that that's true okay that's that's very we've asked a lot of people that question and got a lot of different answers it really depends on sometimes what people's favorite movies are and Mm -hmm. what parts of the movies that they like Mm -hmm. i think we we've seen five a number of times and i think we both really like it up to a certain point and then it kind of falls apart a friend of mine said um the first time she ever saw it you know she was a trekkie going way back she was like, oh, this is like good fanfic, because she's a big fanfic mm-hmm. thing. And they're camping. They do that in fanfic all the time. And she goes, and then it all goes downhill. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love the, the you know, that I mean, that campfire scene where I think the reaction initially, there were, at least I remember, was confusion, you know, like, <laughs> what is this? I, you know, to me, that's a treasure now, that's, that scene, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and so, uh, you know, Star Trek V, you know, I, and I think Bill talked about that today, you know. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it had, that, was, that was a good discussion. It, it had flaws because of the compromises that ha- either had to be made. That was an example of where the limitations mm-hmm. interfered with the art mm-hmm. um, as opposed to enhanced it. And um, uh, But that, you know, I, I would watch Star Trek V any day compared to, you know, 90% of what's available out there. This is know? true. This, this is very, very true. true. Yeah. Now, something else, you're in education, so maybe you can help. We've been discussing this recently. We need to find out how to get PhDs in Star Trek because we think it would help our street mm-hmm. cred. <laughs> and we think we deserve it because we know a lot mm-hmm. about Star Trek at this mm-hmm. point. How can we do this? Um, well, you could, uh, there's some schools that if you just send some money, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, for, uh, but they're not accredited. Uh, That's no, the no, you know, but Hey, you know, uh, you, there is actually, uh, you, what you would do, I would say is you would go into a American studies program. Mm-hmm. They have those or a popular culture studies program and you would specialize in Star Trek wow. where you need to do. And you, there are plenty of schools where you would find support. There are some where you're not. 
they would rather you, you if you're going to study that, well, then you need to study, you know, postmodern, um, uh, you know, literature or something like that. But, uh, you know, DePaul University, for example, where I went, um, was very supportive of me. I, at that time, I was looking at gender roles in Superman. And so I got my master's degree from there. That was my master's thesis was on cool, gender awesome. roles in Superman. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, so you can. You, you know, you won't have a Ph.D. in Star Trek, but you'll have a Ph.D. <laughs> in, uh, in American st- Studies or Popular Culture Studies. And then you... With and the specialization. Then, yeah. Okay. With a specialization. Um, Georgetown Philosophy Department is offering a course in Star Trek. Um, which looked pretty mm-hmm. interesting, although some of the questions were not really philosophy to questions. They were more yes or no questions. Yeah. <laughs> was like, no, I don't know if we they can really make a whole semester. They would be addressing it. We were reading them going, yes, no. Well, and, you know, there's no discussion, <laughs> just some of these things. But. That's philosophy. Though. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, I think we should wrap up. Yes. Okay. But this has been wonderful. Oh, it's been delightful. Thank you so yes. much for your time. Thank you so much. And thanks for having, you know, a podcast that's focused on William Shatner. Well, really you're very welcome. We love it. We love talking about Bill. We will never stop talking about Bill. No, no, no.